Is it time to end the war on drugs? Seth Mnookin will join us to talk about his review of Johan Hari's Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on drugs. This concept that when people talk about addiction, they only talk about it from the perspective of one person doing drugs in a vacuum is kind of risible. How has the great American songbook managed to endure? Ben Yagoda will be here to tell us about his new book, The B-Side, The Death of Tin Pan Alley and the Rebirth of the Great American Song. And it was this simplistic little ditty that people couldn't get out of their heads. Richard Rogers and Cole Porter and Irving Berlin were still around. Say, what is going on? My colleague John Williams will join me to talk about what's afoot in the publishing world. And Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Seth Mnookin joins us from Boston to talk about his review this week of Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on drugs by Johan Hari. Hi, Seth. Hi, how are you? Good, good. So um, I should also say that you are a professor of science writing at MIT and the author most recently of The Panic Virus, the true story behind the vaccine autism controversy. Certainly another up-to-the-minute, timely subject. The topic has rightfully been getting an enormous amount of attention over the last couple of weeks. I wish that the attention was not coming as the result of a preventable measles outbreak, but hopefully this will start to get some good information out there. All right. Let's talk about a very different kind of drug um, or shot, which is uh, the war on illegal drugs. Who is Johan Hari? Uh, He is a British journalist who really had a remarkable um, beginning to his career, became a newspaper columnist and a leading political commentator in the UK at a very young age while he was still in his 20s and actually began also writing for the Huffington Post, so had an audience both in the US and the UK. And then a couple of years ago, he became embroiled in a scandal because he had been taking quotes from his sources' interviews with other reporters and inserting them into his interviews. At first, he said that he wasn't sure why that was a problem or he didn't understand why why people were upset, although I think he's changed his thinking on that. There was some other stuff that came out. He he was slagging his critics on Wikipedia under under pseudonyms and stuff like that. But he kind of disappeared from view after that scandal, um, resigned his column. This is the first thing to come out from him since then. And you are um, also familiar with uh, the subject of plagiarism, which keeps resurfacing um, from your experience in the erstwhile Burl's content where you were an editor. Um, so familiar with it, not as a plagiarist. That's right. That's right. <laughs> someone, uh, yes, who, who, who wrote a lot about media. Calling media out the plagiarists. Scandals, right. My first book was about Jason Blair, uh, obviously former Times employee, who plagiarism was one of his many sins. I should say you have another uh, personal angle on this particular topic, uh, the war on drugs, which is a subject that you have written about and about drug addiction specifically, too. Yeah, I've, I, I have a personal um, history with uh, addiction. I was a heroin addict. I've now been sober for 17 years, I think, long enough so that sometimes I lose count of the years. That's a good sign. Um, but yes, it's something that, um, that I've written about a couple of times 
also have a personal interest and then now as a father of young children, you know, also have an interest in how this plays out moving forward. All right. So before we go into um, Johan Hari's argument and the research um, in this book, I, I want to go back just a little bit, talk about him some more, because you mentioned um, that he had this incredible rise in journalism. And it started off with um, a piece that he wrote when he was 22 for the New Statesman called Just You Wait Until I Grow Up. You open your review with that column because he talks about drugs right away. Yeah, he talks about having just completed uh, college or university, as they refer to it in the UK, having celebrated by doing drugs. The column is essentially saying that people need to understand that that is complete standard operating procedure for his generation and uses that as an entree into discussing both legalization and, and some of the irrationality of um, or what he saw and sees as the irrationality of, of the approach towards drugs, drug use, and drug abuse in, in the UK and actually in, in most most Western countries. What are Hari's politics? Is he writing from the right, from the left? Is he just sort of one of those British, it's very hard to kind of align him in terms of our political spectrum? No, he's coming from the left, certainly. he When he was a political commentator, uh, he supported the invasion of Iraq but that didn't make him completely unique from a lot of other uh, more liberal or left-leaning commentators. So, but o- overall, his his politics are definitely to the left. The book um, again is called "Chasing the Scream: The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs." What is it that he sets out to write in this book? The way he describes it, he started working on this book also through personal experience, both through some of his own experience with with drug use and also the experience of an ex-boyfriend who was who 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 was perhaps is a drug addict um and and family members his intention he said was to sort of understand how we got where where we are and so he traces the quote unquote war on drugs back to the first half of the 20th century in the US and a couple of figures that he think really set in motion everything that that was to come. The three figures that he chooses to start with are um, Harry Anslinger, um, the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics um, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, Arnold Rothstein, a Jewish gangster in New York in the 20s, and Billie Holiday, um, the jazz singer um, who died in 1959 of, of drug overdose. These are not the three most obvious archetypes of the war on drugs. How does he use these three figures to illustrate his point? Well, I think he's he's most effective with Anslinger because Anslinger really was he, – he's, he's a relatively unknown figure to us today. But he really was the person who – created and set in motion the policies that in many ways still dictate how this country treats drugs and and, and drug use and drug addiction. One of Hari's arguments is that his Anslinger's sort of take-no-prisoners approach and an attitude that, you know, treatment was sort of never an acceptable option. Harry traces that and, and looks at how the way that played out uh, both at the time um, and, in fact, in Anslinger's own own life, was oftentimes fairly racist and, and uses Billie Holiday and, and her troubles with the law as a prime example of that. Um, and, in fact, Anslinger's agents had had 
busted Holiday in a hospital, in her hospital room, and she died not long after that. His drawing in of Rothstein, his intention there is to show how the people who benefit most from criminalizing drug use and abuse are criminals. I think that's a fair point uh, and, a, and a point that Harry makes in, in other sections. I thought that the way he seemed to try and force a lot of the characters that followed into these three archetypes didn't always work. But certainly the, the, the background on, on Anslinger, I think, is is important, and a lot of it was news to me. Um, after devoting the first sort of chunk of the book to this historical background um, in 20th century America, he then pivots to current events um, and writes a lot about the drug trade, but also about the causes of addiction. Can you tell us a little bit about what he says about the causes and treatment for drug addiction. It's a very episodic book. He essentially, he has a series of chapters, each of which are kind of mini portraits of, um, of, of a, a person, or in some cases, uh, a couple of people. When he is using those chapters to describe the effects that today uh, that the war on drugs has on law enforcement or on drug gangs, or uh, he, he talks about the violence in Juarez, Mexico, I thought those for the whole, or on the whole, were fairly effective. When he starts to then have these episodic chapters focus on this small number of scientists and, and researchers that he's gravitated towards, I found that more problematic. Uh, essentially, he, he took three or four researchers um, whose work is, is fairly well known within addiction circles and put them forward as being these sort of renegade rebels existing completely outside the system. And the reason that they were pushed outside the system, Harry posits uh, implicitly in the book, is because they were presenting ideas that contradicted the, the war on drugs, the current attitudes in the war on drugs. The reason I found that problematic is because some of the science that these researchers are promoting, or, or some of the theories that they're promoting, simply isn't backed up by evidence or by science. Um, and also because these are not researchers whose, whose work has been ignored. Mm -hmm. um, and in Harry's effort to paint the war on drugs as something that is so, that so permeates society that it even has infected the way research is done, um, I think he overplays his hand there. So on, on the whole, I think lessens the strength of his argument. Give us an example of one of the these theories uh, and why they're not necessarily convincing. There's a, a researcher named Bruce Alexander, who's a Canadian psychologist, who in the 70s did a really, really important set of, of experiments in which he took rats and took two sets of rats and essentially put one set in, you know, kind of very constrained boxes um, and gave them access to drugs and put the other set in kind of the rat equivalent of, of a luxury condominium, you know, with, with uh, areas where they could play, where they could interact with other rats, stimulating environment. And what he found was that the rats in the stimulating environment would not just kind of feed themselves drugs in, until they died, which was the 
sense that people had gotten previous to that because a lot of the experiments were done by putting rats in these very, or rodents, mice in some instance, in these very constrained situations. There are a couple of ways in which that research has been questioned, but I think overall it has pushed the way we look at drugs and drug use in, in some important ways, and I think the general point is one that is not that contested. Um, but Hari then uses Alexander's research to argue that as you know, not just as a society, but in the world, when when people talk about recovery from addiction, and what he says is, quote, we see it through only one lens, the individual, mm-hmm. um, which is something that is just so preposterous, I was surprised that he actually wrote it. I mean, if you go to any treatment center, any drug or alcohol counseling, um, it is always done with discussing family members with discussing, uh, you know, friends and acquaintances and this concept that when people talk about addiction, they only talk about it um, from the perspective of, you know, one person doing drugs in a vacuum is is kind of risible. All right. It's a a book reviewing convention to say the author is at his best when. What did you think that Hari did best in this book? I did think that the the portraits that he he drew of of drug addicts, of people imprisoned, of law enforcement were quite affecting and I think were persuasive in the ways that that Harry wanted them to be persuasive and that they illustrated just how cruel and nonsensical our current drug policy, both in the U.S. and and around the world, can be. Those sections really played to his skills as a reporter, as someone who is able to craft a pretty effective scene with while being economical. One section that really stood out for me was uh, he talked about a woman who was a, a drug addict who was imprisoned in Arizona. This and, is Marsha uh, Marsha Powell. Yeah, exactly. And his punishment for what the prison saw as an effort to be manipulative, they put her in an uncovered cage in the desert where she eventually essentially burned to death. Just a shocking, horrifying story. And it, it, this is it's not a story that was previously unknown. It has been written about and has has gotten some attention. But um, I thought Harry did a a really nice job at conveying that horror and explaining why, apart from the cruelty and the injustice of this, why that was even more upsetting because she probably should not have been there in the first place. I mean, she was someone who should have gotten treatment. She was not a hardened criminal. Um, she was someone who who needed help with her drug addiction. I'm just going to quote um, from your review, quoting from Hari, um, because the writing is so vivid. Um, he writes, after the guards finally called an ambulance, the paramedics tried to take her temperature. Their thermometers only go to 108 degrees. She was that hot or hotter still. Her internal organs had cooked as if in an oven. It's very gruesome, upsetting yeah. yeah, I mean, when you start to look at the war on drugs, there are all of these instances where 
you sort of feel like you've gone through a looking glass and people are behaving in ways that are either completely inhumane or just completely uh, so counterlogical and so irrational that it's really confounding. And that's exactly what Hari is able to do effectively. It's the prescriptive portions of the book where I think he, he was a little bit out of his depth. Well, it's a, it's a very insightful review. Seth, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. The book, again, is Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs by Johan Hari. And this was Seth Manukin, our reviewer, joining us from Boston. John Williams joins me now to talk a little bit about what's going on in the literary world. Hi, John. Hi, Pamela. So we're going to talk about someone named, kind of named, sort of named Richard Price. Sort of named Richard Price, really named Harry Brandt, or really named Richard Price and kind of named Harry Brandt. Um, Price's new novel, The Whites, is on our cover this week. It's reviewed by the mega best-selling crime novelist Michael Connolly. The Whites was supposed to be written under a pseudonym, and now it appears on the cover as Richard Price writing as Harry Brandt. And That's a very week, unusual way to do that. I don't know if that, I mean, it's done sometimes, I think. Yeah, occasionally, but this is a very, they call it a transparent pseudonym, or at least that's what our colleague Alexandra Alter called it in an article she wrote this week where she talked to Price about the process. And it's a funny story. He sold the book to the publisher, Henry Holt, saying that he would write it under a pseudonym because he owed FSG, his other publisher, a new novel that was sort of a proper Richard Price novel. We should say, just for those of uh, who aren't aware of um, how all these houses fit together, that FSG and Henry Holt are in turn both part of Macmillan, part of Holtzbrink Publishers. Right. So these are sort of sister imprints within. Yes, with a parent company. But according to Price, it sounds like what he wanted to do was sort of get away with writing a book for another publisher when he owed he owed one to another. And basically, he wanted to see if he could write a much slicker sort of airport crime novel that could sell millions and millions of copies under this other name. Richard Price is the author, uh, we should mention, of... Um, Clockers and um, Lush Life and Freedom Land and several other books. And he writes for... He wrote for The Wire and he's written many screenplays. So he's a very well-known crime writer who uh, is most admired probably for his dialogue, which is spot on uh, among cops and criminals. The process of writing this book in doing it, he just realized that he he couldn't do it. As he told Alexandra, um, you realize you only know one way to write. I knew how to dress down, but I didn't know how to write down. So it took him longer than he thought it would, and it ended up reading so much like one of his typical novels that he just decided to ditch the the uh, attempt to fool people into thinking this was someone else. And it's gotten very favorable reviews so far on uh, Michiko Kakutani reviewed it this week. And it's, of course, on the cover of this week's issue reviewed by another great crime writer, Michael Connolly. Yeah, and Connolly says that he doesn't normally read crime fiction because he writes it and he can kind of predict what's going to happen in the book. But with this, he was surprised and he called the book uh, as unstoppable as a train coming through a tunnel. That's a, a very good quote. Uh, we'll see that on the paperback, uh, sure. whatever the author's name is on that edition. Thanks, John. Thanks, Pamela. I get no kick from champagne Mere alcohol doesn't thrill me at all So tell me why should it be true that I get a kick out of you. That was unmistakably Frank Sinatra singing Cole Porter's I Get a Kick Out of You.
and here to talk about it is Ben Yagoda, author of The B-Side, The Death of Tin Pan Alley and the Rebirth of the Great American Song. Hi, Ben. Hello there. So uh, we have uh, your book in the review this week, reviewed by the great singer, pianist, composer, conductor, Michael Feinstein, who knows a little bit about uh, the Great American Songbook. What is the Great American Songbook? What do we mean when we use that phrase? Well, there's no official list. Uh, people have different views of what constitutes it. But, but basically, it's a term that came about in the 70s, 1970s, actually. But it refers to a body of songs that were written roughly between the late 20s and round about 1950, although songs get added to it after that. Um, I think most people would agree that a current day song, as good as it might be, wouldn't really belong in Great American Songbook. No song, Beyonce in the Great American Songbook. Not, not really, no, <laughs> no. We played a little bit of Cole Porter there. Who are the other great composers of that era? You know, there's certain names that no one would have any dispute with in certain songs, that being one. Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, those are the two who wrote words and music together among the, the music guys, and it was interestingly, pretty much all guys, Richard Rogers, Jerome Kern, Harold Arlen, uh, Jimmy Van Heusen, among the lyricists, Van Heusen's partner, Johnny Burke, Dorothy Fields, one of the few women in the, in the club, Lorenz Hart, Yip Harburg, Oscar Hammerstein. And those are the ones that everyone would agree on. The then, then if, oh, how could I forget? <laughs> George and Ira Gershwin, um, a couple of dozen others who did great work as well. Um, so these singers, these songs, uh, they performed for Broadway. Um, this was Hollywood. Um, and also Tin Pan Alley. And that's another phrase that I don't know if people necessarily know what that refers to. Right. Tin Pan Alley started out as a humorous name for an actual street, uh, 28th Street between uh, 5th and 6th Avenues in New York City. And it was called Tin Pan Alley because it was the home, you know, in New York City um, where we're sitting right now, there was the, the garment district, the flower district, the sewing machine district, and the song district, which was this one block called Tin Pan Alley because all the publishers had their offices there, would all have this warren of offices with pianos in them, and people would demonstrate the songs with open windows in summer, and the cacophony sounded like tin pans crashing. So it took on that name even as the industry moved uptown to the Brill Building around Broadway and then disseminated around the country. Still, the music industry is known as Tin Pan Alley. Does the street have one of those little uh, street signs today? I, I don't think it does. It, it should. Very it sad. I should. know. Yeah. I, um, it is right near the Flower District and the Garment District. Um, it should be marked off. So what brought you to this subject? You've written a book about Will Rogers, um, but you've also, you're a professor of journalism. You've written many books about writing uh, and journalism. Is this your sort of your other big love? You know, that's a good way of describing it. It was a passion. Um, I, I've loved uh, well, music in general, but that great American songbook period in particular. And looking for a book project, I thought about writing about it, then quickly realized it had been done. But as I read uh, various books and, and looked into autobiographies and, and other sources, I realized that there was a period, roughly almost 10 years from the late 40s through the arrival of rock and roll and Elvis Presley in 55 or 56, when people were bemoaning 
the nadir of American music. Yeah, they and people at the time realized it. They said that they didn't use that term, "Great American Songbook." They said, "Great songs aren't being written anymore. What's happening?" Give and us so, an example of one of those not great songs. <laughs> well, the quintessential one, and when I play it at appearances, people sing along and love it. But it was a song called "The Doggy in the Window." The refrain being, "How much is that doggy in the window?" And this was the biggest hit of 1953. Patty Page did it overdubbing with herself, uh, Sounds of Dogs Barking. And it was this <laughs> simplistic little ditty that people couldn't get out of their heads. How much is that doggy in the window? <laughs> the one with the waggly tail. How much is that doggy in the window? I do hope that doggy is for sale. People like Richard Rogers and Cole Porter and Irving Berlin were still around. Say, what is going on? It's funny because when you say that, I think immediately, speaking of your other book on Will Rogers, of the Will Rogers Follies, where they had that great scene uh, when it was uh, done on Broadway um, with the little doggies sort of barking <laughs> in unison and jumping off a diving board. I don't right. know if you remember that. I do, I do. And there's something about dogs. Um, <laughs> Frank Sinatra is a key figure in, in this book as in any consideration about American popular music. The, the low point of his career was, I believe, 1952 when he did a, a duet with a personality called Dagmar called Mama Will Bark. That was a novelty number. And, you know, he never basically um, could live that day. It all went to the dogs. It went to the dogs. So what happened? What went wrong during this period? How did we get from the great Gershwins to the barking puppies? Well, it's a a complicated story. And and part of it, I concluded, was the greatness of that earlier period was in itself a fluke. I mean, it was like, in my opinion, not too dissimilar from Renaissance Florence with this great painters just all arrived at roughly the same time. These composers and lyricists were born within a range of 15 to 20 years. They they were geniuses. They inspired each other. They inspired others. So that was one thing. Other aspects were demographic. I mean, that period existed, but at the expense of lots of other things. So African-American music, what was later called country music, was not heard on a national basis. There was this monopoly of these admittedly great New York Hollywood songwriters, and other voices didn't get heard. Did those great American songwriters sort of ignore those ethnic and regional differences and varieties and and movements? They they didn't. They didn't. And, And Gershwin and Harold Arlen in particular really understood jazz, really understood blues, uh, Cole Porter wrote a pseudo country song called Don't Fence Me In. They controlled the, the stage. The, the other writers, Gene Autry, who was a cowboy, cowboy songwriter, performer, couldn't get into ASCAP. He tried and tried and tried, and they just wouldn't allow him in. And ASCAP? ASCAP, American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, which was the licensing organization that all these great American songbook songwriters belonged to. How does jazz figure into this? Well, in that great period of the late 20s through the mid-40s, popular music and jazz were really integrated. The composers understood jazz harmonies and that at the same time, great jazz performers took their songs and made great things out of it. Like Coleman Hawkins playing a solo on Body and Soul uh, was just a great integration of performance and music. 
A lot of the book um, revolves around the big personalities of this era. And um, I think you begin in 1954 with a feud uh, between Arthur Schwartz and Mitch Miller. Who were these guys and what was the problem? Well, they pretty much represented the the, the two forces um, that were at odds at that point. Arthur Schwartz was one of those songwriters. Um, He was 54 years old, born in 1900, had great success with songs like Dancing in the Dark, uh, You and the Night and the Music, I Guess I'll Have to Change My Plan. He was finding that his songs couldn't get an airing. He had some Broadway musicals of the period, and they couldn't get recorded, weren't on the radio. The man he met with in that day to try to get a recording was Mitch Miller, who a later generation knew as a smiling, goateed guy asking you to sing along with him. But before that, he was the most powerful man in the popular record business, the head of popular music at Columbia Records. And Schwartz looked down on him. He, uh, Mitch Miller was the master of novelty songs. I saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. <laughs> was in the position of basically being beholden to this guy to record his music. And in, in fact, he didn't. Nothing came of that meeting. So the Great American Songbook has this period, this death. How long does it last and how does it get out of it? The subtitle of the book is it's the death and then the rebirth of the Great American Song. And there's actually two rebirths. One is in that same period, the 50s, actually just around the moment that Elvis came and dominated the charts with five number one songs, Hound Dog and the rest in 1956, uh, Frank Sinatra, that same character who had done Mama Will Bark, had changed record companies from Columbia with Mitch Miller over to Capitol, uh, where he was found a much more amenable uh, corporate culture that allowed him to team with arrangers like Nelson Riddle and start recording some of these classic songs known as the standards, later Great American Songbook, and a series of of great records. Ella Fitzgerald was doing much the same thing. Um, And there was this discovery at that Mm -hmm. time of this great body of songs. The second rebirth, I argue, is starting right around 1960, when the impact of rock and roll was felt, kind of had played itself out in a way, and the ground was cleared for a new kind of great song. So a song like Willie Nelson's Crazy that came out of country and western Mm -hmm. rather than jazz, what Brian Wilson was doing with the Beach Boys, the writers at Motown and other soul writers were writing great new songs that were a totally different kind of song. You uh, you cite as sort of part of this new American songbook, Neil Sedaka, Burt Bacharach, uh, Randy Newman, any other big names that you would sort of count yeah. in that? I'm not sure I would put Neil Sedaka in, the, in that group. I mean, it becomes, you know, a, a matter of taste in a way. I mean, yeah, I was going to say, I don't, I don't know if I'd put the word great in no, there no. either, but... <laughs> no, the, you know, there was a lot of... Um, in that period, in the in late 50s, early 60s, there was a need for a lot of material. And the folks who were known as the Brill Building songwriters actually didn't work in the Brill Building, worked in another building. But Neil Sedaka, Carol King, people like that, mm-hmm. pounded out a lot of just kind of usable material. I would say Carol King is someone whose work deepened. Mm-hmm. So Will You Love Me Tomorrow, Up on the Roof, are really great songs. When you say there was a need, what do you mean? Well, uh, there were all these performers, these rock and rollers and next generation rock and rollers. This is before the Beatles when they didn't write their own material. Right. They needed material. They needed songs. And, and a lot of these songs weren't much more than you know the word content today that we talk about for writing. They were just content. When you uh, personally, your own taste, do you feel like this this new 
American songbook era lives up to the uh, that original golden period? Well, if I had to be frank, I'd say no. <laughs> I mean, I think that that earlier body of work was unique, was uh, sort of supremely wonderful mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, it's special. It's, it's a part. Right. Not to say that current or recent songs aren't great in the runway too, just not as great. But when you when you go to a cabaret show in New York City today, it's still those old standards from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Right, or that Tony are, Bennett show. Yeah. Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga, their latest CD. I think I counted up the songs, and if I'm not mistaken, none were written after the late 40s. Let's end with a song, if you will. Um, one other song that you would say really embodied that great American songbook. Well, you. The, the one that comes to mind is maybe because I just mentioned it was Body and Soul in the Interpretation of Coleman Hawkins. Uh, great song, great performance, 1939, the height of that period, pretty much perfection. All right. Thanks. Thank you so much. That was Ben Yagoda. He is the author of The B-Side, The Death of Tin Pan Alley and The Rebirth of the Great American Song, reviewed this week in the book review by Michael Feinstein. Greg Coles is here with Bestseller News. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What's everyone reading? Well, uh, there are one, two, three, four, five new titles on the hardcover fiction list this week. Starting down at number 15, Tim Johnston has a thriller called Descent about a family that takes a vacation in the Rockies just before their daughter goes off to college and she ends up missing. Then at number nine, Nick Hornby returns to the list with his latest novel, Funny Girl, about British TV in the 1960s, sort of a Lucille Ball-type comedy. Then at number seven, Lisa Gardner, uh, the thriller writer, has a new book called Crash and Burn. That's a standalone thriller, but it does have a cameo from her popular uh, recurring character, the the Boston detective D.D. Warren. Then at number four, Neil Gaiman back on the list with uh, not a novel but a story collection called Trigger Warning. We'll be reviewing that in coming weeks. Um, And finally, the last new title on the um, fiction side of things this week is by Kristen Hanna, a book called The Nightingale, new at number three, about French sisters during World, World War II. I like that tantalizing little coming soon. We should say the same for Funny Girl, which will be reviewed in next week's issue. Um, Lots of thrillers on the list. All right. On nonfiction? On nonfiction, uh, there are four new titles, uh, including a couple loosely or, or less than loosely to do with neuropsychology. At number 14, there's a book called The Brain's Way of Healing by a doctor named Norman Doidge. This is the one that's sort of loosely about neuropsychology. Uh, Doidge is a doctor, but he is a psychiatrist, not a neuroscientist. And um, the book is looking at sort of anecdotally 
at um, the ability of the brain to heal itself through uh, what's called neuroplasticity. Um, if if there's brain damage to one area of the brain, the brain is able to step in and compensate um, through other areas of the brain. Uh, it's something that's been researched over the, the last few decades, and Deutsch uh, kind of looks at some of that research and, and brings us up to date. He did another book on the same subject a few years ago that kind of looked at the idea of neuroplasticity in general. It was quite Exactly good. right. And uh, I think that book was also a bestseller. It certainly kind of found his topic for him. Um, then at number 13, the investigative journalist Gerald Posner, uh, who's still probably most famous for a book that he did called Case Closed, looking at the JFK assassination. Uh, he's also looked at the Martin Luther King assassination, and, and he's, he's written a number of kind of pop uh, investigative journalism books. He's got a, a new book out called God's Bankers that looks at the Catholic Church um, and especially its relationship to money going Back to the Borgias and before, you know, the sale of indulgences um, and tithing and, you know, all kinds of um, things about the the church's relationship to money and, and therefore to power. And more money at number 11. Yes, more money at number 11. A book called Red Notice by Bill Browder. Browder ran what for a time was the biggest hedge fund in Russia. He's an American financier. Um, he started this hedge fund in kind of the boom-boom days of Russian capitalism, um, only to quickly find that the companies he was investing in were all sort of corrupt, um, tied to the government in sketchy ways. He started looking into this and suddenly found himself on the outs in in Russia. He was um, kicked out of the country. He had hired an accountant um, to kind of keep tabs on things. Uh, The accountant turns up dead. And so now Browder has become a leading critic of the Putin government, and he uh, has written this book, Red Notice, really kind of a a real-life political thriller. It's a really upsetting and terrible story, too, what happened with his lawyer and – but he's been on a kind of crusade uh, ever since. Exactly so. It's really doing well. And uh, he was also one of the most recent and perhaps last authors to benefit from an appearance on The Daily Show with <laughs> John Stewart. Then finally, new at number 10 this week, the second neuroscience book. Uh, it's called The Teenage Brain. Um, this one's actually written by a neuroscientist, Francis E. Jensen, who is a professor of pediatric neurology at Harvard Medical School and herself the mother of uh, two teenage boys or former teenage boys. Um, Her co-writer on the book is Amy Ellis Nutt. And as Daniel Siegel did in his book Brainstorm, which was a bestseller just about a year ago, um, she looks at the new um, research on the developing adolescent brain, um, the changes um, that happen during adolescence and also um, just before and just after, kind of how the brain develops and, and what specifically teenagers are going through that makes them act the way that they do. So we have on the one hand... Brains that are damaged and brains that are teenaged. And we could have like a little Venn diagram showing the overlap. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.